0: turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15, verse 18 today. John chapter 15, verse 18, as we embark on week number four already of the sermon series, The Fullness of Life, uh, which comes from John chapter 10, verse 10, the words of Jesus, where he said, I came that they may have life and have it with mediocrity. No, no. He, He said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. The ESV calls it life abundant in the Greek. It is parasos, it is over and above, it is more than is necessary, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon. The kind of life that you would expect from people who literally have God Almighty dwelling within them. It's a victorious life, an overcoming and fruitful life, a life that stands out for the right reasons and captures the attention Of a watching world. And if you think that that kind of life is only for the heroes of the Bible or for a select few super Christians, you would be greatly mistaken. For the truth of the matter is that fullness or abundance is the normal Christian life. You say, Chad, how do you know that? I know it for at least two reasons. First of all, because Jesus promised it, did he not? When he says they may have life and have it to the full, who is he talking about? He's talking about us. It's all believers and not just a select few. And next, I know that fullness or abundance is the normal Christian life because it is the Holy Spirit who produces it. And as we read our Bibles, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. And so therefore, based on the promise of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are all meant to experience Fullness or abundance of life. And John 15 describes this kind of life using the metaphor of the vine and the branches and the production and bearing of fruit. And when we talk about fruit, what we mean is fruit is the overflow of Christ in us. It is the overflow of Christ in us, which is made po- visible in three primary ways that we're going to look at in more detail in the weeks and months to come. First of all, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we start in next week. The fruit of the Spirit. Number two, the fruit of our witness. that uh, An important aspect of fruit in our lives are lost souls who come to know Christ and will be with us for all eternity. And then number three, it's the fruit of our works. Those works which will stand the test of the judgment seat of Christ that will not be burned up in that, that tempering fire, but the fire that these works pass through and they last. And so... As we learned in the account of the vine and the branches, it is really, 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 everybody say really, really important that we understand our role in fruitfulness. Because if we get this wrong, we're going to live far below the fruitful or abundant life. For you see, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to produce fruit. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to produce fruit. It is not your job to produce fruit. It is not my job to produce fruit. Only Jesus, the life-giving vine and the source of energy that leads to fruitfulness is able to produce fruit. We are merely branches, which means that it is our job to bear fruit. And that is simply done by doing one thing, And one thing only, and that is abiding in the life-giving vine. And we abide in Jesus when we fellowship with him, when we trust him, and when we obey him. So that's our one job, right? It makes it very simple. We have one job as branches, to abide in the vine, which is Jesus, through unhurried fellowship, through faithful trust, and through our obedience, that is the key to fruitfulness. And as we learned last week in Pastor Travis's sermon, the defining characteristic of an abiding life that bears fruit is love. Last week was all about love, right? Love for Jesus, love for each other. As Christ overflows from our lives into the lives of others, we bear much fruit. Now, does this all sound blissfully simple? I would contend that it really is that simple, but while the fruitful life is simple, it is not easy. Lest you think that we're selling you a bill of goods about some Pollyanna kind of thing that it never has any kind of pushback or any kind of difficulty or turmoil, that simply is not the case. The fruitful life really is simple but it is not easy. Jesus said so in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Some of your um, translations say trouble. Anybody have any tribulation or trouble this week? Yeah, Jesus wasn't joking, was he? He's being blunt, ruthlessly honest with us that you know what? especially in living a fruitful and abundant life, we will encounter tribulation and trouble. And it is, in fact, in this passage that we're about to encounter in today's text, we are going to have the fine print of fruitfulness. He's going to go into great detail to tell us what this tribulation looks like in John 15, 18 through sixteen four. Now, what's fine print? If I say, hey, watch the fine print, what am I talking about? details that uh, if you define fine print, one definition I found, they are qualifications that could be considered disadvantageous. All right. These are the potentially hidden costs of a contract or an arrangement. But here, Jesus doesn't have them be hidden. He gives us full disclosure about the costs of living a fruitful life. He gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what he gives us in today's text. He gives us the fine print of fruitfulness that we will have tribulation, we will have trouble. So would you please stand with me as I read the text? John chapter 15, verses 18 through sixteen four. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you for your honesty. Um, As Jesus, in this farewell discourse, was preparing his disciples for his departure, he spoke bluntly to them. He told them the reality about how hard it is in living a fruitful, abundant life. But God, there's good news this morning that overcomes the bad news. And so, God, may you um, temper us with the, the hard news, but may you encourage us with the good news. Open our ears wide to hear, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So, in, in today's passage, Jesus gives us the fine print of fruitfulness, and it comes in two main points. Point number one, fruitful people will be hated by the world. Fruitful people will be hated by the world. But number two, fruitful people will be helped by the Holy Spirit. Fruitful people will be helped by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at point number one. Fruitful people will be hated by the world. Now you may notice that this is quite the departure from last week's theme, which was love. It was love, 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 and now... Hate, 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 hate. In fact, um, in 15, 12 through 17, last week's passage, Christians are known by their love. But here in 15, 18 through sixteen four, the world is known by its hate. It'd be interesting if you went back to last week's text and you were to underline all the places where the term loved was used and counted them up. And in today's text, circle all the places the term hate is used and add those up. By my count, there are seven times in today's passage where the word hate is used. Once again, meant to bring highlight to the difference, the contrast between last week and this week. Christians are known by their love, but the world is known by its hate. Let's make sure that we don't fall into that hate category. Well, to truly understand what is being talked about, what Jesus is getting at in this passage, we have to understand what is meant by the term "the world." The world. This is really, really important. We're familiar with John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We get that. But then we have First John two fifteen, which says, "Do not love the world." Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a contradiction, right? So wait, God loves the world, but we're not to love the world. So what's going on here? Well, the issue is that the Bible uses the term world in at least two different ways. We're going to highlight two of them today. And the first is, word as used as the earth and the physical universe. God's creation. God's creation which in Genesis, God's creation was declared to be good. And God loves his creation. And especially he loves people who are created in his image. He loved them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for them. And so that is the first usage of the term the world in the scriptures. It is the earth and the physical universe for God so loved the world. But there's a second usage of the term the world in Scripture, and it is the humanistic system that opposes God. The humanistic system that opposes God. Clearly, the world in this sense is not good, is it? For it is a system, it is an ideology ruled by Satan himself. For it even says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is the God of this world. And as such, he is continually at war with God, with God's values, and with God's people. And so when 1 John says, do not love the world This is what it's referring to, Satan's humanistic system that opposes God and is in continual conflict between God and the world, God's values and God's people. Let us not lose sight of this war that is taking place continuously. So with this in mind, it should be no surprise that Jesus warned his disciples and he he warns us today to say, hey, because this war that is going on, fruitful people will be hated by the world. We are enemies. We are at enmity with one another. God and Satan, the things of Satan, the things of God, the people of Satan, the people of God. And there are three specific reasons given in the text that fruitful people will be hated. The first reason is that the world hates nonconformity. The world hates non-conformity. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God's people are not of the world. As a matter of fact, Colossians 1.13 says that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, we once as sinners were in Satan's kingdom. We were of the world, but now we are in God's kingdom. And so now while we do live in the world, we are not of the world of Satan's humanistic system that opposes God. We are citizens of heaven. We march to the beat of a different drummer because we serve a different king than the king of this world. All of which means that we go against the flow. I like that little fish. she looks happy. But let, let his smile, again, not lull us into thinking that that's an easy thing to go against the flow we are to be counter-cultural, nonconformists, and as such, the world will hate us because it hates nonconformity, because when we go against the flow of the world, it does a couple of things. We expose and we frustrate Satan's evil agenda. We expose and we frustrate Satan's evil agenda. So it's, it's no wonder that we're, we're, so much pressure is put upon us to go with the flow, to conform, to go along to get along. And in our study of Revelation, right, we were confronted with this whole idea that, yeah, to be faithful to God and not go with the flow is going to cost many their very lives. We are not those who cave and give in to being like the world. But Romans 12, 2 exhorts us, says, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. I like that image of being squeezed into the mold, into the image of the world. We are not to conform because we have been transformed We have a new king and new citizenship with new values and a new way of life. But know that when you obey the command of Romans 12, 2, when we do not conform, when we reject conformity and we go against the flow, we will be hated by the world because the world hates non-conformity. Next reason that fruitful people will be hated by the world is that the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. Look at verse 18 where Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Truth is that Jesus was hated right from his birth, was he not? Where did we see that? King Herod, right? I mean, King Herod gets wind of the fact that um, this one that's believed to be the Messiah, king of the Jews, has been born, and he goes on this killing spree of all of these children trying to get to Jesus. From his very birth, Jesus was hated. This continued throughout his life, throughout his ministry, until finally, on a hill called Golgotha, the world nailed him to a cross, And the fine print that Jesus is giving to his disciples and that he is giving to us today is the fact that we too will be hated on account of him because we bear his name. We bear his name. We live according to that name and everything that it represents. Just as it says in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And sure enough, you know the story, all of Jesus's original disciples experienced intense persecution, and all of them except the apostle John were actually martyred. In fact, it's said that Um, As we look at persecution even in the world today, it continues to the point that more people died as martyrs for Jesus in the 20th century, the last century, than in all of the previous centuries combined. So this hatred is alive, it is well. And so let us not be surprised or even resentful when we encounter this persecution. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's all part of the package. It's all part of the deal of what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you signed up to follow Jesus so that your life would be easier, you're going to be greatly, greatly disappointed. As a matter of fact, if you are not encountering persecution, it may actually be a warning sign that you are not truly a servant of Christ, or at least you're not living out what that name represents. For it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, it's very blunt, very clear. Indeed, all who desire To live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Well, because fruitful people will be hated by the world. The world hates nonconformity, the world hates Jesus, and the world hates the Father. Look what Jesus says in verse 23 He says, Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, here's something that ought to get our attention. So watch this carefully. The greatest hatred that Jesus experienced was from people who knew religion but did not know God. The greatest hatred that Jesus experienced was from people who knew religion but did not know God. And church, this is an important question that we need to ask ourselves, every single one of us today. Do we merely know religion or do we truly know God? Do we know Jesus theoretically or do we know him experientially? Because the fruitful or abundant life does not come through knowing religion. And maybe that's why some of us are very disappointed and discouraged about this whole concept and it seems out of reach. It only comes through personally knowing Jesus. But know this, what was true then will be true today. Fruitful people who know Jesus will be hated by religious people who do not really know him and what greatly complicates matters is that many of these religious people they're within the walls of the church they're within the walls of the church and the apostle paul described them this way he says in second timothy 3 5 these are people having the appearance of godliness but denying its power and i cannot help but think this describes so much of the american church today It has the appearance of godliness but no power No fullness or abundance. Settling for a fruitless Christianity that was never meant to be normal. But that's not going to be us, is it? No. I believe that we as a church are uniquely positioned to live out before a watching world fruitfulness that is rooted in the truth of God's word and expressed through the the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are word and spirit people, are we not? Yes, we are. And so that's the first point in the fine print of fruitfulness. It is this, it's the harsh reality that Jesus teaches that fruitful people will be hated by the world because it hates nonconformity, it hates Jesus, it hates the Father. That's the hard news today. And it may even cause us to ask the question, it's like, well, how can we live fruitfully and abundantly when we encounter such hate in the world? It seems like a tall task. It almost seems like it's more than we can handle, and it is. It is more than we can handle. We have to have divine help. And that's what point number two in this fine print of fruitfulness is all about. Fruitful people will be hated by the world, but fruitful people will be helped by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. It says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And this this one verse, it's rich, it's deep. It tells us four key things about the Holy Spirit. It could be a sermon in and of itself. Um, And the Holy Spirit is going to become the subject, really, of the sermon series in the months to come the key to living a full or abundant life is understanding and living out what it means to relate to the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we are told about the Holy Spirit in this verse is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of help. He is the spirit of help. Look again at verse 26. Says, But when the helper comes, and this is one of my favorite titles of the Holy Spirit, he is the helper. And what an encouragement that would have been to Jesus' disciples as they were being prepared for his departure. And they're freaking out. It's like he keeps telling us he's going away. He's going away. What are we going to do? Jesus says, don't freak out. I'm going to send you my spirit and he is going to be your helper. You will not be left alone. Alone, And the helper, church, is every bit as real and as powerful today as he was then. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you. Let's, Let's believe that. Let's trust that. Have faith that that is absolutely the case. He is ready to help us, to help us in any and every aspect of our lives. He is the helper. Praise God for the fact that he is there to help. Next we are told that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. Once again, verse 26, "When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth." And we could easily gloss over that. But it is so crucial, and it's so important to fruitful people who will be hated by the world. why? Well, what is Satan's primary weapon? Lies. It's lies. It's lies. He is the father of lies, and he whispers in our ear constantly, doesn't he? One lie after another. We are bombarded by lies every single day. We desperately need the help of the spirit of truth to speak powerfully into our lives and to overcome Satan's lies, which threaten then to squeeze us into the mold of the world. So he is the helper, and one of the key ways that he helps us is through being the spirit of truth. We need truth. Next we learn that the Holy Spirit, he is the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of God. Verse 26 again. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. We have all three members of the Trinity represented in this verse. And it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is every bit as much God as God the Father is and as God the Son is, which means that the help that we receive from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, it is divine. It is divine. It it is all-knowing. It is all-powerful. And you can't do better than that, can you? What a gift that we have been given in the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. He is the spirit of truth. And he is the spirit of God. Next, we learn that he is the spirit of witness. The spirit of witness. Verse 26, one last time. He will bear witness about me. Here's the key. This divine help that we receive in the face of the hatred of the world is not so that we can isolate ourselves from the world and play defense, hunkering down until Jesus comes back. That is the opposite of why we have a helper and why He lives inside of us, and why He is all-knowing and all-powerful, and what He wants to do. Rather, the help that we receive from the Holy Spirit is so that we can go on offense and be powerful witnesses. Look at verse 27. Jesus said, And you also will bear witness, that the Spirit is the Spirit of witness, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. God's power at work in us through the Holy Spirit is not primarily for our own benefit. That's important to understand. And that's where I think a lot of theological traditions go off course. They think it's, you know, um, fruitfulness and abundance, it's about your comfort and about you getting what you want. That prosperity theology thing, that is not what we are talking about. God's power, fruitfulness, abundance is not for ourselves, it is for God and for others, so that we will bear witness. It is for the benefit of others as we witness about Him through our fruitful lives and our truthful words. And just as it says in Acts 1-8, I think this is such an important verse because it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you for what purpose? You will be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit is primarily for witness to point people to Jesus, to lead them out of spiritual bondage and into eternal life, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so when we put these pieces together, as we abide in Jesus, we're the branches, he's the vine, and the Holy Spirit produces fruit through us, As we bear fruit as branches, our one job is to cling, to abide in Jesus the vine. This gives witness. This gives witness to the world of the powerful presence of God. And that, my friends, is the ultimate in fruitfulness and abundance. That's what it's for. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of help. He is the spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of God, and He is the Spirit of witness. All of this resides in every single believer. Every single believer in you and in me. The question isn't how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, because you have all of Him. The question is how much of you does He have? Because I think that's where we get into the whole area of we quench the Spirit. We hinder the Spirit. So, we see in today's passage this this fine print of fruitfulness. It's an important balance to what we've experienced so far. All these promises of, of the abundance and fullness of life that simply comes when the branch abides in the vine Jesus. And this sounds so blissfully wonderful, but Jesus gives us this hard reality here that fruitful people will be hated by the world. Are you ready for that? But fruitful people will be helped by the Holy Spirit. So now let's take a few minutes to talk about application and answer the question, how should we then live? I have three simple application points for you this morning. And the first application point is this, love Jesus supremely. Love Jesus supremely more than anything else, more than your safety, more than your comfort, more than your security, more than your retirement. Love Him more than the things of the world. Love Him more than being accepted by the world, being willing to endure the same hatred and persecution that He did, Because ultimately, this becomes a proof that he truly is Lord of our lives. And perhaps where there are idols that have crept in and are hindering us from loving Jesus supremely, there is no better time than right now to confess these idols as sin and to repent of them because that will continually be a blockage to you experiencing abundance and fruitfulness. As long as there are idols There will be blockage. So love Jesus supremely. Next, love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. It's no coincidence that last week's text and sermon and theme, it was all about Jesus commanding his disciples to love each other. Why? Because these disciples were going to need each other. Right? As they encountered the hatred of the world, how much more did they need to encounter the love of their brothers and their sisters? And, church, if we are truly going to be people who live countercultural lives, who go against the flow, we are going to need each other. And we're going to need each other in a way that goes way beyond just showing up here on Sunday morning to listen to a sermon, to sing worship songs, and to go home until we do it all again the next Sunday. That's not going to cut it. We need community, koinonia, fellowship. We need to do life deeply together and love each other deeply because we need each other. We need the support. We need the encouragement. We need the protection that comes in community. Lastly, point number three, how should we then live we are to love persecutors compassionately. We are to love persecutors compassionately. Um, you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you go to some other places and Jesus taught that we are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us. How do we do that? If all the things in Scripture, I think this is one that is potentially the most challenging. The people who hurt you the most, you are called to love, and you are called to pray for them. How do we do that? One key, I believe, is to not take hatred and persecution personally because it isn't actually about you. Did you ever think about that? See, part of the issue is when we are hated, We take it personally, and I understand why we do. I mean, I am as thin-skinned as they come. I am as much of a people-pleaser as they come, and it doesn't take much for me to get disappointed and discouraged because someone offended me. It doesn't take much, and so I get it. But at the end of the day, it isn't about us. What's it about? It's about Jesus. They don't hate you because of your name. They hate you because of whose name? Because of Jesus' name. So the hatred that we experience, the persecution that we experience, it isn't personal, it's spiritual. And that in and of itself ought to help us in being able to demonstrate love and compassion even for our enemies, even when they hurt us. That I think was the key to Jesus being able to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And ultimately, that hatred, that persecution comes from people who are suffering and in spiritual bondage themselves. You've been set free. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Your eternity is secure in Jesus. You have the ability through the Holy Spirit to live in fruitfulness and abundance. They are in spiritual bondage, doomed to destruction. And being able to see people through the eyes of Jesus in that way goes a long way toward helping us to love our persecutors compassionately. Which at the end of the day, I think again, helps us to be able to do supernaturally what we cannot do ourselves naturally. So, That is the fine print of fruitfulness. Again, I hope this is a good counterbalance to where we've been so far where it just sounds like Pollyanna. It just sounds so so simple. You know, be fruitful. Just do that one thing, which is to stay connected to Jesus. But it's true. It is that simple. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy. And next week, we will transition to a different section of Scripture. Again, seeking to preach this both topically and expositionally as we head into the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of what fruit looks like in our lives as we will be in Galatians chapter 5. And so would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, all around us we see evidence of Satan's kingship in the world. He is the king of this world. But we thank you that he is already a defeated king. And that very soon the king of kings and the lord of lords is going to come and finally once and for all defeat the one who attempts to usurp the rightful place and name of Jesus. Thank you, thank you for revelation and the, the, the time that we had to just soak in that and to reflect and to be reminded of that truth. But in the meantime, here we are in the world. Here we are as the world attempts to compress us and to conform us into its image. And God, that pressure's strong. I think of our students today I think of our our elementary students, our junior high students, our senior high students, our college students, and what it is like to grow up in the world today, the pressure that exists. But God, I thank you that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. I pray that that would be true, lived out in the lives of each one of our students, in the lives of each one of our parents, in the lives of each one of our adults. Awaken us to the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And may we live accordingly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.